what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, we've got to do a new ad, mate. We do. We're long overdue. We're not going to be sponsoring Einzerwiener anymore. Yeah, well, fuck that no guy. Longer. He's fucking not paying us. <laughs> no. We've just figured out. No. We've just, he's sitting right here in front of us <laughs> and we've just figured out he hasn't actually been paying all no this time. No wonder there's no bread and milk on my table fuck in this house. After we were just nice to him. <laughs> we're just, fuck we're him. just flattering him. We were just whining and dining him, <laughs> looking after him like a big fucking client. We'd look after and then we find out he hasn't find been paid out he the hasn't bill. Been paying us. the bed. He's doing it right now, so we, <laughs> we may as well tell people that if they're in Australia and you need dog gear. Don't get it from him. Well, get it from wait, him. Wait until he pays the get bill. Get it from him so that he can pay us. <laughs> What's your stupid website, Jason? E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. There you go. Nice. Get your stuff from there. Okay. All right, on to the real sponsors. Yes, the people who actually pay the bills. Canine Suticles. Yep. The best canine suticles. Premium grade. Yep. Human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yep. it. Yeah, it's great shit. Dan Croft. Yes, in Canada. In Canada. Yes, Toronto, Canada, I believe. Yeah. Yes. What were we pushing for him? It's puppy class. Puppy class, yeah. Amazing puppy classes in a great facility. Barbara DeGroote. From the heart dog training. Barbara just loves us and we she love Barbara. She just loves us. Barbara is our sugar mama. Yeah. <laughs> that literally is the thing's called, right? Yeah. The tear that she called. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the sugar mama tear. Thank you, Barbara. We Thank appreciate you. Thank you, Barbara. We love you. Horny George Kittredge. Yes. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Yeah. yeah. The box is incredible. I saw it for the – did we talk about this? Have we done an we ad have. since? We yeah. have talked about how amazing the boxes is. You and I travelled from – where did he pick us up? What, what airport that was, was that? Uh, in Colorado. Colorado. He showed us the prototype. Yeah. We was talking through it. You and I were sort of thinking this is never going to take off. Yeah. And finally he does it. He pulls it off. Not only does he pull it off, it's fucking brilliant. Like it's safe. And he also does classes where he teaches people how to use them as well, like teaches the dogs how to get up on the bike seat and then load into the box itself. And it's bloody brilliant. It's incredible. Really proud of George. Lovely guy. And I'm really happy that this is paying out for him. All right. Daniel Trapino? It's actually Tropiano. He corrected me. Okay. So anyway, Daniel Trapino. (laughs) (laughs) Dog Club South Australia. Yeah. It's a cool little facility he's got there. It's a great facility. Get in, check it out. He does all all the training. Yeah, he's decked it out. He's got it all looking schmick. It's a bit street. It's a bit edge. It's a bit kitschy. Yeah, he's got some cool artwork and stuff there. Check it out for sure. Yeah, it's great. It's about time South Australia started lifting its game. Good on you, Daniel. Yeah, leading the charge down there. Well done. We got a new one. Who we got? Tailored canines. We have two. They contacted us on Instagram. Yeah. Stumbled into our advertising <laughs> tier, and yep. away we go. Yep. So they're in Canada. They are. They're in Ontario. Gold Nipopo gold people. Yeah. Gold multiplicators. I think, I think they're a gold multiplicator. Yep. yep. So if you're recently certified as a silver school and you're mm-hmm. looking for somewhere to do your gold, yep. and you're around the Canada or just anywhere up that northern part of the Americas. Check it out. So they do puppy, adult group classes, private and board and train programs. There you go. Thank you for jumping on and advertising with us. Hey, everyone. 
If you would like to be an advertiser, <laughs> don't do it. Reach out to us. Shut up, you bullfed. So I know that on Patreon, and we appreciate people just putting money in there. That's wonderful. Yes. But we do have to limit how many people we have. And so get in contact with us. Make sure that we actually can serve you and that we actually, you know, can provide you value as an advertiser. And that you align with our ethos as well. Of that, course. That's very important. That would be appreciated. To recap. Our sponsors are, and the people we love because they give us a lot of money. Yes. Well, it's not a lot of money, but some money. Yeah. Einzewick, he promises he's going to do it. He's look, I'm looking at him now. I'm looking at the reflection of him fixing Has it. Has that gone through yet? No, because still trying. has got shit pines <laughs> Dan Croft, puppy classes, yep. cool facility. Barber de Groot. Amazing sugar mama, love her, from the heart dog training. George Kittridge. Rowdy Hound dog boxes. Daniel Tropiano, Tropino. Tro- dog clubs. Troppy Daniel. <laughs> dog clubs. That's true. Yeah. And new to the family, tailored canines. Yeah. All the way from Ontario, Canada. So we've got two Canadians. That'll do advertising. Yeah. Mo- do. Mostly from the United States. One from Oz. Well done. Well played. Thank you, sirs and Matt. Check them out. They support us. You yeah. should support them. Yep. Here's a show. There's a show now. Here's a show. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook, mm. and Jason Furman. Good evening. Been on the show before. Sponsor of the show, the Einzawiener himself. The goat. And. <laughs> Calls himself the goat. The, the mini Einzawiener. The mini Einzawiener. Ryan Furman. Mm. Son of Jason Furman. Poor kid. I know. He would have been better off growing up an orphan. What a fucking life. <laughs> oh, Jesus, Glenn. In Somalia. Jesus. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everyone. Yeah, hi. Uh, so you guys are in town because you've just delivered the world's best round table to my facility. Second best. Second best? Why second best? Why One's is heavier. It's heavier, yeah, it that's true. Bones. Yeah, yours is heavier. Mm. It's incredible. I appreciate it very much. Thank you to Dan for making it and for you very much for bringing it down that's, overnight. That's Dan from Metal Pro Australia. Yep, there's our plug. Box ticked. We've done. <laughs> if you know, but in all honesty, it, the table is fucking incredible, and uh, the design is perfect. Blah blah blah. It's all excellent. On uh, wheels moves around. I saw it being fabricated yeah. in the shop. Like you put videos up yeah. about yeah. a month ago. Oh no, that was my one. That was your. That one. was the one we had for the seminar. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Same design. It's the design of a stripper pole, isn't it? It is. It's mo- <laughs> it, is the, it is legitimately. Dan had made some mobile stripper poles. Yeah, and we just sort of. Extrapolated that out a little bit. So, for anybody at home who's listening to this who doesn't know what we're talking about, a bite table is basically a round table. It can be any sort of, it can be a square if you want it to, but better off round because the decoy can then move around it. It's got a pole in the middle. You secure the dog to it by like a chain lead or something like that. And then the dog can run around the edges while you, as the decoy, can move in and safely place your arm or a piece of equipment in the dog's mouth. It's used for agitation, it's used for developing bite work. It's a great invention. It's actually been around for a long, long time. First one I ever saw was back in the ADT days. Yeah. They weren't as sophisticated as they are now, though. Back then, I think we were making them out of those giant... Cable spools. Yeah, the cable spools that they would use for industrial work, like linesmen would use. And then you'd put a, a flat top on the top of that. You'd get a bit of pole. You'd run it down the middle and bash it into the ground. Yeah. 
and put a pulley on the top that you could just spin it around with a bit of chain lead on. So, yeah. like I said, the ones that you've got, they're properly fabricated. They're being made really well. Well, I mean, most people still just make their own. Our old one was that. The one we used to have at Jordan's place was yeah. just a cable spool that he put it. Whatever works. If it works, yeah. it works. It just got, all it's got to do is just hold the dog in the middle and the decoy can safely move around the edge and you can – Utilize it to build your own distance to the dog. There's a lot of uses for it. I, I'm Heaps. definitely, it's going to be, you know, a big chunk of my new course is going to involve an explanation on how to use it and all that. But the thing I like about it the most is it doesn't hurt my back. Mm. <laughs> and it's, it's got it's wheels. Easier. Yeah. And so this one has got, it's incredible. It's got wheels that lift and can be used to move around. Anyway, that's our giant plug. <laughs> and I appreciate you very much for bringing it down. And since it's a Thursday and you're coming to training, we thought, hey, let's have you on the show. Before we do time. jump into Jace and talk to him a little bit about his European trip and everything else he's been up to, I just want to give a bit of positive feedback that I received. I was up in Queensland recently. I caught up with Jace there and his lady and Ryan, watched Ryan working some dogs up there at. Casey's PSA club, mm-hmm. which was great. And then I went on to do the seminar for the weekend at Redlands Dog Obedience Club. It was really good to hear some perspective of a lot of the people there that listened to the show. Mm. What they did get a lot out of was listening to you and I talking about clubs. Oh, yeah. So for a lot of them, it had a huge impact. I got a lot of feedback on that about some of the management and some of the structures that needed to change in clubs. Yeah, right. And I think that was the tipping point for them. When they did hear that conversation, they thought there are things that definitely need to change, Yeah, which was great. I had some really good after-seminar discussions with them about clubs, about management, about structures. I think it's refreshing for me to hear that some of the problems that I had and some of the problems that we've all faced from time to time being involved in clubs, incorporated or non-incorporated clubs or whatever they might be. Training groups. Training groups. Just general gatherings of people and how political it can be and how it, it really destroys the fabric of what the club is designed for, like the improvement of dogs and for people to basically have a sanctuary away from all the political shit they have to deal with in the world. So a few of them were finding that the same things are happening. You know, they go to a different club. Redlands is a good club, actually. We're not talking about Redlands. We're talking about external clubs and that. They're actually a really well-functioning club. They seem to be making money. They've got a really good network and a good support system working within themselves. So that itself was nice to hear. Nice. But when you're talking about other clubs who have got people that are sort of handbreaking the club, they're not keeping up with current demands. They're not keeping up with new training styles. They're resistant to change. They're sort of hanging on the worlds of yesteryear. In so, they're frightening new members from joining. Well, not frightening. They're discouraging new members from joining the club. They're Mm. preventing new and younger blood coming in, which is really discouraging for anybody who does want to be involved in the club, but basically then comes in and says, well, there's no point joining this club. It's not going to change. The people in it are very political. They're a bit spicy and full of a bit of piss and vinegar. You know, what's the point of being in a club like that? So it's nice to see that people took away an important point that we tried to put across, which is help yourself fix your clubs. Mm. That's good. It's it is. Good to it's know great. That, um, it's really good. It's good to know that the message is received well or worth, it's worthwhile hearing. Mm. So, Jace, welcome yes. again. Welcome to you. Well, welcome me. Thank you. Talk well, in the microphone, you silly old you can edit that out. Uh, mm. So you guys just got back from Europe. Oh, a month ago, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about it. What, what was the whole point of the trip? The main point was to touch base with suppliers, mm-hmm. try to build some rapport because just a lot of the suppliers I deal with haven't. They know me via email. They know me by messenger. It was just basically shake their hand, like look in my eye and see what I'm about. Yeah, prove you're a real person. Yeah. Did that go well? <laughs> or are 
you better off for a person in What you see is not what I was over. <laughs> well dressed, freshly shaven, nice haircut. Okay. Well, as nice as a bald head. Mate, there's only so much lipstick you can put on a pig. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. Like we spent, uh, was, I think it was four days in Singapore sort of being a a child abuser, so to speak, because I made him bungee jump and zip line and yeah, right, okay. So he did all the adventure holiday stuff. Oh, there. He did, yeah, not me. I'm too fat for that. That would have uh, been awesome. Did you love it, Brian? I didn't you, really have a choice. You can't shake your head. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a choice. <laughs> you bungee jumped. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've never. Like I've done all the dumb shit, right? Except mm. bungee jumping. Like every time I've watched that and watched people whiplash their back doing it, I'm like, mm, I don't need that. But, but the- do they? Do they whiplash their back? Yeah, because I mean, if you do it gutsily, you're good, right? Like if you do an actual swan dive, you're yep. fine. But most people kind of shimmy to the edge and freak out and basically fall off. And then oh, right. as you hit the the extent of the bungee, you do this like giant flip forward, right? Like yeah. the you know, like on a whip, the you know, popper. The, the, the popper that actually goes snap. You see people yeah. doing that all the time. Every time I've ever watched it, because I used to have one at Fox Studios, remember? It used to be there all the time. And I used to watch people going like, oh, that doesn't appeal to me even a little bit. Like I get the safety of it. I get mm. the excel. Like I, I'm not worried about like, oh, it could snap. It just hit the pool. It's just the the way that your back snaps forward. I'm like, I've got enough back issues. I don't need to add bungee jumping to that. I can honestly say I've never laughed so hard. I like I had, I was, had tears running down my down my face. I was I had I was two beers in, so I was half cut, <laughs> and I was just losing my mind. And then he started squealing like a, a death squeal from the top, and that was it. I I was done. Your video of that? Oh yeah, no oh, good. Did oh, you yeah. get pushed or did you voluntarily jump? I voluntarily jumped. Oh, good well, man. I, I asked him if he wanted to do it at the beginning of the night. He's oh, yeah, yeah. But as we got closer and closer and closer, I don't know. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you said yes. <laughs> You're stuck. Well, it's a ballsy thing to do for anybody because it's a big unknown. Yeah. I mean, you've still got the bungee on there, but there's been plenty of cases where that bungee rope has snapped too. Yeah. So oh, it, was, it, was, it was the best. And yeah. then there was two ladies that went after Ryan and they lost their wigs. So they're halfway down and it's strung out. The big stretch has gone in and they're like, wigs come off. One went in the pool and the other one <laughs> caught it. And it's like on, on video with like this rat in her hand while she's bouncing up and down. It was the oh best. God. It was the best. Okay. But, All right. So Singapore, yeah, adventure Singapore. activities, holiday, but then you guys went to Europe. and Yeah. So like it was mostly dog stuff you're doing there, right? When you really look at it, probably wasn't a lot of dog stuff in the in the scheme of things. We lobbed into, into Barcelona first. The first day we got there, we went straight to Hervé's place from mm-hmm. Demonet, the guy who makes all the bite suits. So for context to people who don't know, Hervé Mavawanga, yeah, arguably, no arguably the best decoy ever to walk the face of the earth, actually owns Demonet, the bite suit yes, company. that's correct. So you went and saw him? Yep. So we went there, a few arguments with cab drivers. It was like an hour and a half outside of Barcelona. So he, he took Ryan under his arm. Ryan couldn't talk. He was starstruck. It was mm-hmm. like being in the presence of God as far as he's concerned. Ryan got measured up, got his suit, got all his swag, spent the day with Hervé, went out to dinner that night. He couldn't ask for a better bunch of people. Everyone from the floor that are sewing the suits right through to Hervé and his wife and his daughter. It, it's incredible. Just mm-hmm. beautiful people. Beautiful and you worked people. a couple of ring of his dogs, right? Well, that was on the Sunday. Right. So that afternoon when we first went there, Ryan was – taken under Hervé's arm, under his wing and and shown stick work for like an hour and a half. Uh-huh. It was like, here's a tyre, you're doing stick work for an hour. And I was hot. Yeah. It was stinking hot and 
bang, bang, bang for like an hour and a half and I could just see Ryan's face is glowing in the dark and his arms are getting sore. So that was that was day one. Day two we went off to Montserrat up in the mountains, uh, Abbey of some description, wild place. And then uh, day three the monster came out. All the monsters came out. Yeah. And, yeah, everybody knows I don't like Malinois. It's common knowledge but I would own every single dog that he owns. Yeah, right. Without a doubt. See, I really like what you just said before about Hervé's development system where he got Ryan to work on the tyre for an hour or so. There's Made not enough difference. of that that actually happens. There's too many people who behave like princesses when they turn up to development camps. They overthink what's going on. It's not everybody. I'm not labelling everybody. But from my experiences, there's been so many people who are impatient that unless they get a sleeve on and get to get a dog on them within minutes – they have a giant conniption about it and then they don't want to be involved in it. Mm. Whereas there's so much skill that needs to go in the development, and I know you're doing that with the development camps that you're doing, Yeah. but the point is is that there is a lot of trust that needs to go into even in the basics development of the dog. And we've talked about the foundations and how important they are to develop properly. And oh, I, Especially with ring because the stick hits are a very big absolutely. thing. So like – Hervé was teaching French ring one hits, mm. French ring two hits, and three hits, and they're, they're a mile apart. Mm. But, mate, Pat and I did an episode a while ago where we talked about the importance of even bite development because mm. I'm very critical about how poor people are at raising puppies and young dogs in bite work. Yeah, too much, because, too fast. Oh, mate, it's terrible. Some of it is just absolutely appalling, like the way they shovel rags and flirt poles and even wedges into puppies' mouths, and they just do a really poor job of it. I've scrutinised a lot of videos that I've seen. It's not Australian. It's just around the world because puppy work is hard work. There's a lot of running oh, around. It. it is cardio plus. And puppies are pains in the ass and the handling is pain in the ass. Everything is a pain in the ass about it. And it's not good looking work. So nobody really wants to do it and showcase it. Because it's not flashy. It's not flashy. It's grubby. It's messy. It's untidy. So for a lot of people, they just want to get through it. They only want to do the stuff that sells their image, the posing work. And that's not good enough. It's not good enough for developing young dogs and especially other people's dogs. So they'll do all the fucking critical work with their own dogs, but other people's dogs, they just fucking hammer through it. They do a lot of really shitty, badly placed work on it. And that's why I think it's great when I do see masters teaching techniques where they ask their students or their Padawans or whatever you want to call them to be patient, but they also teach very linear skills about how to do it properly and how it should look and also about the variation of different breeds and how they bite and what to expect, the problems that you'll come up against and how to resolve those. Heaps of respect. Those are true masters. They're real masters of training because they're not just at the end of it because, to be honest, a really well-biting dog a really well-biting dog, a monkey could work that with a dog. suit. You know, He did. I know that there's still skills around because there'd probably be people listening to this thinking I'm insulting them. If you are, you are a monkey because you're not the person that I'm talking about. There are people out there who I have utmost and boundful respect for because I know that they're truly miraculous the way they do their work, but there are people out there who are just ridiculous what they are doing to dogs all through the journey and then the worst thing is they coach other people to do it and that's just frightening and, and frankly, for this industry, it's not good enough. Back in my day it was hurry slowly. Yep. Just took your time. We had no goal. Our goal was to get that dog on the street to work on the street. We didn't care if it was two years, 18 months. Yeah. It would be nicer if it was quicker but 
we didn't really care too much about it. And like now it's even more prevalent, well, it should be more prevalent. It's it's a sport. Mm. Like unless your dog's going to age out at six or seven years old, who cares if it's not ready for a BH till two years? Mm. Why rush? But that's the journey that most dogs are, you know, by the time they get into PDCs and BHs really, in Australia, you know, like you're looking at a 18-month to two-year-old dog before yeah. they they get into being able to physically be able to do it and mentally be able to cope with it yeah, properly. and if you have to push it out for another Why not? Year, who, who cares? cares? Who cares? It's not. We're not playing for sheep stations. No, it's a sport at the end of the day. I think, you know, we've talked about this before, but I think a big part of the problem of that is like so many dog trainers these days are educated online, which is great. Yeah. But um, there's only so much you can learn. Yeah. There's no real feel. That's right. So and like, there's no transferable yeah. delegation that you can do. That's it. So like learning to decoy online, there isn't a lot of great resources. No. Like I get a lot of questions about that and I usually point people towards Sean's Patreon, Ben Lepensky's Patreon, yep. but there isn't very many – you know, like even the old Leerberg DVDs that I got years ago and- Ryan's just watched them. Yeah, Mark, what's his name in it? Mark Keating. Mark Keating. He's a fantastic decoy, like one of the best, but it's very limited in what they show in that DVD. Like it's, you know, so like there isn't that many resources available to learning And you need to feel it too. You need yeah. to be able to feel what the pinch of a dog bite feels like. Yeah. You know, the placement of a dog bite, what the dog is hunting for when yeah. it's actually biting and progressing into equipment. You know, unfortunately, what there is heaps of is footage of trained dogs. And yep. so that's what people see mostly. And so yeah. a lot of people don't go hunting that information on like how to learn it and how to develop it. So we were established that that information is limited in what it can truly teach. Like you need, it's an excellent supplement and yes, for sure is. people Absolutely. should should get it if they're interested in that sort of thing. But you really do need the tutelage of someone, you know, and to be doing it in person and mm. that kind of stuff. Oh, because It's, it's Tomo tools. Yeah, because what we see a ton of is, you know, like finished dogs. Everybody posts like great work of finished dogs. Like you saw me, we I worked. And they're just the dogs who made it. Yeah. You know, the dogs that didn't make it, nobody knows why. Yeah. And they don't understand why they didn't make it. Yeah. And, and see, that's a big part of the missing fucking culture and the story that really should be told. Why did this dog not make it through the journey? Yeah. See, for me, I'm curious about that and I want to know, why did this dog not make it through the journey? What was it that prevented that dog from getting it through? Was it bad handling? Was it bad decoying? Was it the dog didn't have the genetic gene pool to survive the training requirements? What, yeah. what is it? Yeah. But, I mean, you can see it like you only got to look at like the view stats, right? So, like, if I post a video of a, a puppy doing some, like, rag work – it gets next to no views. Whereas then I, you know, I posted a thing the other day that you filmed for me where I was like uh, fending one of the adult dogs and really trying to keep him out. That mm. gets a lot more engagement. So that unfortunately is seen by more people who then go and do that, not knowing that that is the end of, you know, maybe 10 sessions of teaching the dog how to handle that fend and that there's all the progressions as, as in teaching the dog you know, to change targets and to handle changing targets and to make decisions and to be exactly persistent right. and all, all those boring. sorts of things. For, no, for that's 99% right. of people, it's just, it, it's boring. Yeah, it is. It's totally boring. And, yeah. and and it's even boring to do. Like, you know what I mean? So like, that's why it's not. It's just grunt work. Yeah. But the problem is with the grunt work, like with that early development work, and yes, I identified early on, it's boring, you know, like it's cardio and, and people think, oh God, I wish this dog would just grow up and hurry up into the yeah. into the nice stuff. And I'm putting my hand up. I'm yeah. that same sort of person. Yeah. I recall back in the days where, same as you, Jace, you know, you and I sort of started in the same yeah. era together. You know, on a Thursday night, I'd have 50 dogs to work. That was including puppies, juveniles, and older dogs. So I started with the pups and the juveniles to start with, and then my second session was all the adult dogs. 
So with that, you'd, we'd have all these dogs lined up. I had Boyd scrutinising everything that I was doing all the time, but you, we just didn't have the luxury of saying I don't want to do it or handing it off to somebody else. Like you had to tell the story from the first chapter to the last chapter. Yeah, you'd be working dogs from six weeks through to six years and at the end of the night you'd go home banged up. Oh, mate, you were, you were just – Sleep for eight or nine hours. Your limbs you were swollen, your knees were throbbing. I mean, your back was hurting. It was hard work. I learned to love it because I understood – the pilgrimage that it took, there were so many components to it that were so important and integral along the way from the journey of the handler to the journey of the dog as a puppy into a juvenile as an, an, an adult. But not only that, but also any of the decoys that were doing the work, like you learn so much about the variabilities of everything that was going on. And if you're missing that point, like if you haven't got a mentor that's teaching you that, you're really missing like a huge part of the story, you'll get to the end and then you'll think to yourself, why are these things happening that I have no control over mm. or no understanding? And that's when you've got to go and try and fill in the gaps with other people who probably won't know either because they're the sort of people who rushed and bummed through it themselves just to get to the end to see the flashy stuff. Now, everyone loves the flashy stuff. I love the flashy stuff too. I used to remember in the early days you'd be working some of the best dogs. So you'd roll out your 10 best dogs at the end of the night. Of course. And that's when the crowds would gather. Everyone would come over and want to have a look and they'd all watch. Yeah, it was a hero moment. It was a hero moment. It's the moment that, you, you you know, you got to wear your undies on the outside of your pants. You got to, you know, do the hard work. <laughs> Other than Thursday night. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. It was good fun. But it's still not addressing that critical infrastructure that's missing so much in the young dog's work. I don't think I did a really good job of explaining it in that other podcast. So I got some feedback where people said, you know, I know where you and Pat were trying to go, but it sort of led off into other stories. But I know that you're How old. dare you? How dare they? Well, they know that's the point of the show. <laughs> rabbit hole? What is this rabbit but hole we did. We, we tended to segue into some other things, but, you know, I know that you're from that era. I know you've been working a lot of puppies. I'm pointing to Pat and Jace when I'm saying that. And Ryan's coming up in it now. You know, he's going to be the next generation of young kids that are coming into decoying if he wants to see it through. You know, you've had a big experience with a world-class person, persons, when you've travelled to Europe. You've got to see some of the hardest dogs on the planet and you've got to have a really good go in it. Now you're coming back and working a PSA club where you've got to go through development here. This is a really integral point for you and one that I was very fortunate as a younger guy coming into it that I did have a team of experienced people around me and we were doing the best we could with the tools that we had back then. Even for us in Australia, what we were doing was leagues ahead of everybody else because Boyd travelled. He went over to Europe, he went to the States, he trained with people who were doing the best of what they knew then and then he was bringing it back to Australia. So he'd say, all right, we're changing, we're modifying, we're going to upskill what we're doing, no longer are we going to do this. But what we were doing wasn't so far from the world infrastructure of what most people thought was acceptable in training puppies, juves and adult dogs. But what we did start to learn was there were little incremental things that we needed to do better and answered a lot of questions of why do dogs do this? Like why does a dog start shifting around on bites? And, you know, we realised it was a pressure thing from too early on. We were doing too much pressure too early with some of our dogs and it was creating shifting and tensions and stresses in the bite. It was something that we immediately all said, this needs to change, we need to fix this. We're asking too much, we're trying to make our puppies grow up. It's the same thing with you, mate, you being 15 years old now. You know, there aren't demands on you to instantly turn into an adult. You know, you're still allowed to be a child. I know your dad wants you to, you know, he's keen to see this journey progressing and moving on. 
but you're still allowed to do goofy things. You're still allowed to be a teenage boy. And that's good because well, that, that's part of a normal development. Well, and, that's and, one of the, but that's the things that we forget about puppies. Yeah. Well, one of the things I'm very cognizant of with Ryan is I can't push him into it. Yeah. Like there's no point. If he wants to do it, I'll give you every opportunity. I'll put you in front of the best decoys in the world who I can get you in front of. Yep. If you don't want to, who cares? Yep. Don't so do it. Why do you want to do this, Ryan? Because it's interesting to me. So we certainly have identified, I guess this is the flavour that the, the show is taking today, right, is we identified that there's a lack of decoys in Australia that are very good, right, because there just isn't anywhere to learn it really. There isn't any schools here. There's not a place that you can go for six weeks and leave, you know, quite competent. And so myself and many, many others, we decided at the end of last year, like, that's the focus. We're going to try and train a bunch of people. We're not going to charge anyone anything. We're going to try and train people. Right now at our club, we literally have more people turning up to learn to decoy than we have dogs that can bite them, which is a great problem to have, but it remains a problem, right? It is well, still a problem. there's always going to be the issue of enough dogs. That's, yeah. That's just Australia. And it's working. We're developing some people. There's people who are getting better. There are people who have been at it for a while and sort of a, a, you know changing their style. There's people who are just starting and are coming in fresh and we're teaching them. But I'm interested, mate, because beyond that your dad is the Einzerwiener, like <laughs> why what, why are you into it for at 15? Like I couldn't imagine anything fucking that I want to do less in the world at 15 than get, get bit by, up dogs. by dogs. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I just enjoy the sensation of being bitten because okay. I'm just That like makes that. sense to me and that's a weird thing that people won't understand. They don't understand the thrill of it, like the adrenaline the rush that you adrenaline actually – Yeah, rush. it's an adrenaline rush. You're much younger than I was when I started. I was 20 when I started first working dogs. And, I mean, I was a kid back then as well, but I was still 20. I could drive. I could turn up myself. You know, none of my parents came to support me or put me through. It was something that I initiated myself. But I understand that. The first time I got presented with, and it was a Roddy called Stager, and he was a really intense Roddy. He used to do a Holden Bark where he'd put his chin on your ball sack, and it was terrifying he would push and he would drive at you and you had to be really quick to step back and get the arm up and get it in his mouth in time. They walked me through the technique. They told me how to do it multiple times and I was dry drilling it and dry drilling it and dry drilling it. And I was I was scared. I was scared because I, I watched him and I watched how pushy he was with the other decoys and I thought, I'm not skilled enough to do this. I'm not fast enough. You know, I was a martial artist back then and I thought I was pretty fast and I thought I was super skilled and everything like that. And I must admit, the first time I did it, because I dry drilled it probably 50 times before I did it, I did it reasonably well. So I managed to step back, pull the sleeve up nice and fast. He targeted well, and he was a good targeter. And that feeling of adrenaline that washed over me, I talked about it last week with the one wheel. It was like I've never taken it, so I'm not experiencing it to it, but it was like a like a drug, like heroin. It was like a narcotic. It just rushed over me. I was so concerned with everybody watching me. I had all these eyes beating down on me and the dog that was slobbering and spitting all over me. What kind of bite was it? It was a sleeve bite? Sleeve bite. And so how did they do it? Was it a send to a bite no, or no, from a bark and hold? Talk us through the whole thing. Because okay. I'm interested to hear about people's first ever bite. So <laughs> do you remember yours, own? Like suit bite like or, or proper like bite? Proper, proper bite. Yeah. Okay, wait up. We're going to ask you as well. Yeah, because it would be very recently, right? So 20 years old, there was a guy called Dave Schmicky and he, he had a Rottweiler called Stager. Stager wasn't a mess around dog. He was a good biter and he was, like I said, he was very intense. And Jason, So hang on, you're 20, well, you're 52 I'm now? 53 in two weeks. Okay. So yeah. this is 30 plus 30, years 32, ago. 33 years ago. Okay, yeah. Yeah. 
And Jason and I were just talking about this before you got here and we were having a quick chat. We came into the heyday of when we didn't have a polluted gene pool of Roddies and Shepherds. They mm-hmm. weren't show there wasn't that strong mix and strong desire now to go into the shows. Like it was these, really only working dogs. These were these were dogs that were really fresh out of the gene pool of real German dogs, you know, like the east-west German lines in the German Shepherds and the German lines in the Rottweilers. So we didn't have anything but the stronger lines. So these were very strong and intense dogs. So Stager was actually, you know, like he was intimidating as hell. Like I said, he'd do a Holden Bark where he had his front legs in between your front legs and his chin was on your groin. And I'm not saying near it, I mean on it. He Was, was he taught that? Yes. Like, yeah. yeah. So who, why was, and who by? The owner shaped it into him. He like, wanted it. Well, Boyd did as well because it looked very dynamic and very intimidating. And did the dog have a job? Was it a... No, he was just Dave's pet dog that he. Okay. Yeah. So it was. It wasn't that he worked with it or anything like that. It just was his he own. Didn't, no, dog. he didn't work with it. He was just one of the senior trainers at ADT at the time. So he was probably, you know, in his mid twenties at the time. He was a builder, full time job, and on the on Thursdays and Sundays he'd come down and train. There were seniors there who were sort of allotted their group of apprentices. Okay. I hadn't been allotted anyone at that point in time. I just turned up as a client. I was training my own dog, and you know, I said. I'd like to learn how to do that. And they said, great. To be honest, I had a relationship with Boyd. I'd known Boyd for probably four years before that. He was one of my kickboxing mentors. So we knew each other for a long time, but I didn't have a dog and I didn't know about ADT and I didn't know about any of that interest. So I just sort of developed. Anyway, push comes to shove. I finally get my opportunity. We dry drilled, we dry drilled, we dry drilled. And then I had experienced him coming on the arm. So he was on, on the lead the first time that I gave a bite to him where I sort of just edged in and Boyd held me by the back of my jumper and he just said, walk in, walk in, walk in, keep your arm up, keep it at this angle, walk into the dog, walk into the dog. And he said, the dog's intense enough now, drop it into his mouth. So I walked in and just went clunk and the dog grabbed it and shook me like a rag doll. And I thought, oh, that's awesome. And he goes, all right, now that you know how to do that, we'll do a few more of them. Then we're going to do the Holden Bark with you and you can test your metal there. And he said, but you don't fuck around when you're doing this. There's there's literally the words he gave me. He said, you don't fuck around when you're doing this. You can't off time this. You can't, like, if you don't want to do it, like if something's going wrong, just say so and we'll recall the dog away. And he had a beautiful recall. So his obedience was impeccable. Mm -hmm. He had clean outs. He had a really intense hold and bark. The dog's obedience was great. His healing was good. His drops were good. He would listen and he would take instructions, even though he had all this intensity around him. There was a lot of really good control around him. So it finally came, I was standing in a breezeway and the dog got sent into me. It wasn't a long, it was probably about five metres from the handler to the decoy. But Dave said, Revere, he sent the dog in and Stargate just came down like a fucking, like a steam train on me. And he literally, he just parked himself underneath me and I thought, holy shit, he's really got his chin on my nuts. And that's all I could think about at the time. And Boyd's going, okay, he's going, you're not breathing, you're turning purple. And he said, so breathe. And he said, you don't have to rush this. The dog will hold you until you're ready to break. And he was great. Boyd was really, really impressive. Like he just kept a mantra the whole time. And he said, breathe, Glenn. And he said, and keep your wits about you. Think about what you're going to do. Plan this in your head and get a beat with it. He said, it's like a musical beat. It's like one, two, three, and four, one, two, three, and four. He said, time the bark of the dog, time the motion. Cause the dog had a, like he had this really intense bounce when he did the hold and bark. 
So I, I saw it. I could actually see the rhythm that the dog was developing. And as soon as I got into the rhythm, I winked to let them know I was going to, he said, wink when, you, when you're going to do it. I did that. I stepped back. I brought the sleeve up and I got to have my big hero moment because I caught the dog really well. I think I probably shat my pants at the same time. <laughs> so there was a lot of things going on, but it was the kicker for me. That huge adrenaline rush came over me and it was that. That was the time I knew this is me for the rest of my life. Everything that I had been questioning about, like when most of us do go through that perplexing state of mind where you're asking yourself, what's my purpose? What am I here for? What's my meaning of life? What am I supposed to do on this planet? For me, that was answered right in that moment. The minute I caught that dog in the sleeve and it all came together and it all bundled up, that was the minute I got hit by the bug where I knew for the rest of my life, I'll be doing something like this. Mm, that's cool. Mm. Ryan? It was just after you left the first decoy development camp and then Casey told me that- Oh, I that's right, because you, you didn't get in the suit that first one, no. did you? Yeah, okay. And then he puts Zeus up on the table. Cole, like, checks out my presentation, goes, good, that's it, and then pushes me into Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> that's my boy. Um, and then I just worked him on the table. Did you get bruised up? Yeah. How did you feel about what went through your mind? Like talk to me about what you were thinking at the time. I knew I always wanted dogs, but I just never knew I wanted to do that side of dogs. So when I got bitten, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I kind of want to keep doing this. And then. Were you scared? Like were you a little nervous? I've always been around working dogs, so there's not like any fear. Yeah. Um, And your dad's like the, the meanest dog on the block. Nah, the owner's a wiener. <laughs> the wiener. Not anymore. I'm no, I know. you to dash I, out at the I moment. joke. You know I love you, big fella. Yeah, that's sussing itself. <laughs> do, you, do you remember the first time you got bit? Yeah, unfortunately I do. It was May the 3rd, 1987. Oh, Jesus, okay. It was my 18th birthday. I'd just finished working in a club. This wasn't by a prostitute in the Philippines, was it? <laughs> no, no, that was 2012, 13, something like that. I'd, I'd literally just finished working in a club on the Gold Coast. Yeah. Um, I'd had a couple of knockoff drinks. Yep. And I, the guy I was working for at the time said, come down, we're doing a bite session down in the Broadwater car park. Yeah, okay. So I turned up still in me black and whites, short sleeve shirt. I was about 150 kilos gassed up to the eyeballs back then. Mm-hmm. And he said, you're going to be taking bites from this dog. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. Didn't want to do it. Didn't want to have a bar of it. I'd probably six beers in and I didn't want to have a bar of it. And a guy, believe it or not, Steve, he had this rotty, mastiff, pit bull, big, leggy, rotten-looking thing. And he says just he gave me a, what do you call them, cricket leg protectors? Oh, yeah. 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 And this dog was like a legit, he was as big as Kai, like taller, yeah. but that sort of. Old school. Kai's my XL bully for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a monster. Like Re- he's a 50-something kilo yeah, or 56 kilo or something. Wrecking ball. We strapped it on and I'm sort of half cut. And I got down the other end of the car park, probably 20 metres away, sent mm. this dog in. I'm trying to f- focus on this dog. Half cut. The dog hit me in the forearm. I went back about six, seven feet, ass over tit, feet in the air in the garden Dog shook the shit out of me and I'm like, I'm never doing this again. Hang on. Never. With the cricket pad, yeah. where were you wearing that? On my forearm. So it was a leg, oh, wow. like a. Yeah, it was a, the so cricket you, pad. <laughs> all the like, all the shitty bite work videos where you're like, oh, oh those people have newspaper wrapped around there. That was you. We had newspaper. We had carpet. We had pigskin. We had leather. We didn't, there was nothing. So it was, yeah, it was a set of cricket pads from um, 
a sports store in Southport. Hang on, how old were you? I was 18. It was my 18th birthday. Oh, yeah. In 1987, I, yeah, third of my... See, I got into it right on the 90s. Yeah. And by that time, Boyd had good Frabo sleeves. Like, he, oh, we, he went over and brought Frabo. <laughs> we didn't and, have any of that. When did, like, dog sports start in Australia, like, biting dog sports? I believe... In I, the 80s? Yeah, I, I think the Gold Coast had a Schutzen Club around that time, okay. maybe. Okay. But we didn't know about it. The underground yeah, stuff yeah, started in the early 80s. Okay. Yeah, because I know from Boyd telling me, and it was basically from breeders, you know, like they just, and they were doing all that sort of thing where they were making their own sleeves, like out of mm-hmm. reinforcement and carpet, where mm-hmm. they just put it around their arm, just building whatever they thought would fit into a dog's mouth. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. wasn't until those sort of end of the 80s, late 90s, that they sort of developed into Frabo came out, Schweikert started to come into the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, I bought my first sleeve in 1992. I used to use all the club ones and then Boyd said, I'm doing an order from Germany. If you want your own left and right set, let me know. Because you didn't have all the nice Belgian sleeves back then. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until about, I think, 1993 or four that that's that first time that Pat O'Connor came over from Mm -hmm. Ray Allen. He brought the Ray Allen French linen bite suit. Back in those days, the only way you could get it, you'd have to physically get on the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning Ring a company overseas. Hopefully you got your time zones right. Yeah. Speak to them. Give them $5. No credit card. You'd have to send them a With a dial, rotary dial phone and no internet, nothing. Have to send them a money order from Australia Post. Or go over there. Yeah, or go. Well, we didn't do that then. And then they'd send you a hard copy catalogue that was like an inch thick and you'd have to juggle your way through that catalogue and hopefully pick the right thing. Oh, the big catalogues, yeah, the big 300-page catalogues. Best things in the yeah. sun. And yeah. then you, you used to treasure it, didn't you? Like, like it was like gold. You it hid it from everybody. plastic holders yep. yeah. <laughs> on your office desk. It was, yep. it was like a playboy. It was like a playboy too. for dog trainers. Yeah, it was it's yeah. funny to even think about that because I can remember I've bought dog equipment over the phone and made the 3 o'clock in the morning phone call <laughs> probably in like 2011. Oh, yeah. So like the internet was around but not everyone was oh, online. Is, you know? But you're still, yeah, you weren't ordering online at that stage. You no. were still sort of. Well, we had to yeah. rip yeah. the back page out of those catalogues, fill it in with what we wanted, work out the exchange rate, go buy a money order from Australia Post. Yep. And then send it off hoping like hell that would get there. Yeah. And then three and a half months, four months later, something would turn up. Yeah, in the that mail. was it. Remember, like, it was just the like, well, I hope that happens. Yeah. You like, don't there's know. no tracking info that's coming no, to you or nothing. anything. You're just like, I hope one day this turns up. Yeah. And you'd forget about it oh, by yeah, the, time the time it did. Like and it, when anyway. it turns up, you're like, oh, what's this? You get a giant box of goodies and yeah. That sounds yeah. like my every day at my place anyway. What's what did I order this week? No idea. I was kind of fortunate with that because I had that. ADT network to fall mm. back on. So it wasn't me. It wasn't really my money. It was Boyd stuff. And he had all the stuff there. And to be honest, I had no, like you, mate, I had no idea about any of this sort of stuff. When I turned up there, because I know I've told this story so many times now to the cows come home, but I thought Boyd was a greyhound trainer because everyone said, oh, he's into his dogs more than everything else. Like that's his primary focus. Mm-hmm. He's not as interested in the martial arts. He loves his dogs. And I thought, oh, yeah, greyhounds. And it wasn't until I got Harley and then Boyd insisted that I come down and I went down to the club and saw it and I thought, holy shit, you know, this is just so different than what I imagined. Because it was a, it was a Thursday night, it was dark, it was in the middle of winter, there was fucking hundreds of people there, yeah, hundreds. so there would have been like a bit of a magic about it. Oh, mate, it. it was like a carnival. Um, Ooh, our, it was like a carnival. training was always like 3 a.m. in the morning, yeah. broad border car park, hiding from council rangers. 
and you'd see the council truck go past, and it's like, get the cars in the Gemini, get them in the Utes, get. Down. It was it was horrific. We well, were always hiding from them. Well, this was private property, so it used to be there was a place called Central Springworks, which was in Kilsyth in Victoria. And the owner of the property, David Armitage, he just leased it to Boyd. And he said, train my dogs. And we had sections down the back where we had like a makeshift kennel down there. He was great. He was such a good bloke. He was a lovely landlord. And he just said, "Whatever, whatever's my land, use whatever you want. As long as we trained his dogs and picked up after him. He loved it because he got free security for his place. And it was, like I said, it was like a fucking carnival. The, yeah, it was just. We never had anything like that up here. It was like a going to Disneyland for working dogs. And I, I walked in there and I thought, what the fuck is going on here? Who the fuck are all these people? Yeah. It looked like mayhem, but it was organized and orchestrated beautifully. It was fantastic. How many times did you go before you got. I was probably down there for about half a dozen times before I, I pushed on it and got the nerve to ask. Yeah, okay. So um, you asked, you weren't like invited? I was. I was doing what I t- you and I tell everybody else to do now. I was picking up things at the end of the night. I was sweeping up and sucking up, you know. I was doing all the right things. And Boyd and I knew each other. Well, like we were old soldiers back then. So he said to me, mate, you're going to get into this or not? And I said, well, that's what I'm here for, you know, didn't come to fuck spiders. And he kind of said, yeah, well, we're going to do some after training tonight when all the dogs have gone home, we're going to do some training development, hang around. And that's when he got me into the bite with Stargar. So that was it. And that's where the big lead came from. I still say it to this day, and I don't say it with any disrespect to anybody else, but for me, that was the best time in my dog life of everything that I've ever done because it was so intense and there really was a lot of going on. But I was in my prime then Oh, too. I hated it. Did you? Oh, Jesus Christ. I couldn't think of anything worse back oh, in those man, days. I loved it. You'd I loved a, it. I, looked for, I, I, I sacrificed every other thing that was going on in my life at that point in time oh. because I couldn't stop thinking about so it. So why didn't you like it, Jason? I'd be literally leaving the pub I was working in and then sneaking down into the Broadwater car park to get wailed on by monster dogs. I was like, nah. Yeah, but if you got shit equipment and you didn't have people guiding you properly, that that wouldn't be pleasant. Like I was doing it for free. Like I'd get smack in the head in a pub for 10 bucks an hour. That's okay. But no, getting wailed on by dogs for free was not my idea. So how did that come to be? Because when you were working security then, you weren't a dog handler. At that stage I wasn't working dogs. So how did you – Fall into doing that. Well, the guy that, that I work for, he had contracts all over the Gold Coast in pubs and clubs and taverns and all, and and that was just one of his arms of his contracts. Right. So it was like, we need a handler. You're big. You're next. Right. And then it just went on from there. I've always loved the handling side of things, but doing the bite work, I can live without it. Sidestepping for a minute, isn't it amazing how shit money we got paid to do security and how dangerous. We the, thought the, it was awesome. Mate, the sites were very dangerous back we, in those um, days. There were weapons and they were just heavily intoxicated and drugged out people that you're getting we were, paid 10 bucks an hour yeah, to, we were, <laughs> to put your life on the line dealing with these people. And, I mean, there we were, there were no cuts. cops, you know, there was no one to help you out. It was just you and your team and you just hoped that you had a bunch of thrillers that would turn up instead of a room full of fillers because, you know, those clubs were used to go but, off like but a it firecracker. Was still, it was still pretty good money. Like nobody earned 10 or $11 an hour back in those days. My old man was on $500 a week as a manager of a big window company. Yeah, right. And I'd make six, $700 in three nights as yeah. a 17, 18-year-old. So I was like, <laughs> shove this up your ass, Dad. I don't need a uni education. You had to work for it though. Oh, yeah. Like you'd, 
It was end, huge risk. End of every and night, like, hands in ice buckets. And go yeah, to work but you you would have loved it because you like to blue and oh, you would have enjoyed. Yeah. So it was just an opportunity to go out and get you. Were, you probably enjoyed the fact that you were in the clubs oh, and you got to punch on with people. Whenever there was a punch on, it was guaranteed you were in <laughs> yeah. it. And and you didn't have to be spending money. You were getting yeah. paid to be there. And you had bouncer groupies, which yeah. is another bonus. Yeah, that right, was okay. that was a good side of it. Yeah, that, that well, yeah, that was a good side. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was a groupies. Yeah, I've that never was, heard of bouncer yeah. groupies. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you a story later on. Oh, yeah. please don't. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, all right. So then you – I know we spoke about this last time you were on, but you then came into the handling sort of just by the, the company but you were in just for like how hey, you're going to be handling next day. it. Yeah, Basically right. the very next day I had, had a couple of dogs at home. John assessed them. They worked well and off I went. But I've always – for years and years and years, I'd get sick of handling, go back to clubs for two or three months, go back to handling, and then just back and forwards, back and forwards, back and forwards. I haven't done clubs in 15 years now. Yeah. It's interesting – to my knowledge anyway, we don't really have anyone in Australia that grew up in the dog scene and is in there now. Like, cause it, you know, like with that sort of, you know, eighties, nineties starts, age. well, that were kids, like literally children, like you, Ryan, right? Like, so like to be in the suit now at 15 years old, like, you, you know, in a lot of the European clubs, some of the American clubs, that's pretty common. You get like, because someone like me takes their, or like mm. you, takes their kid to the club and the kid goes, okay, well, I'm interested in this and they get in it. Or there's so a, lot that, of, a lot of pushing. Yeah, but so, you know, by the time you're 30, you've got 15 years experience mm. and you're actually quite competent. Well, I didn't really start in dogs until I was nearly 30. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, and like, I think that will be interesting now that there's more people, it's becoming a little more prevalent, it's a little bit more mainstream. I think it's a little bit more posh, you know, not that it's posh at all, but it's not just security guards doing it. It's anybody who wants yeah. to, who has an interest in dog sport can do dog sport. It's a bit more kitschy sport. now, isn't it? Well, there's yeah. a lot more yeah. younger handlers coming in. I'm yeah. seeing a lot more ANKC side of things. And, and there's girls that want to do it now yeah, where there wasn't girls that want to. There's a lot more. Kylie used to do it. Like she was probably one of the. Decoying. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, she'd get in the suit and she'd get hammered by dogs. So that was an anomaly because you look at clubs now, they're full of girls. Yeah. They're full of girls. Yeah. You know, like. Like some of the major competitors on the world stage are women. Yeah, you know, well, many of them. And I mean, back when I started, that wasn't the case. Yeah, no, you know, dudes. it was all dudes. I know we've touched on this, and I know that, like, you know, everybody's experience is their own, and everyone's an individual, and you know, people. I'm sure that people will be kicking their dashboard saying that's not true, Pat, but that's your individual experience. I think looking holistically at the industry, one of the beauties of dog training is that it is a meritocracy and that it doesn't matter whether you're rich, poor. I mean, if you're rich, you can afford to employ more people to help you for sure, right? Yep. But at a club, doesn't matter if you're a guy or a girl, rich, poor, gay or straight, whatever. It doesn't matter. Mm, you got Everybody, the skills, you yeah, got it's, the, it's you totally, if, if you can convince the dog that you have the goods, the dog will go along with it. And if yep. you can get your hands on a decent dog. And I think similarly, like, of course there's dickheads everywhere in the world. But for the most part, in my experience anyway, no one really gives a fuck whether the decoy is male or female. If they're a competent decoy, they're a competent decoy. The, the hard part of it is that it's a physical thing. Yeah. So you need a certain stature and you need a certain level of strength. But if you can attain that, man or woman, it doesn't matter. And, yeah. and it's irrelevant, you know and what technique I mean? technique helps a hell of a lot too. Yeah, I mean, you have to be good. You have, like, I mean, be able to move well. I think that's one of the things of learning to decoy. You've got to be physically capable of moving well 
with 15 kilo, 15 to 20 kilo bite suit and 30 kilo dog. Well, you can't be a bumblefuck. You like literally, if you're walking down a set of stairs and you're going to fall over your feet, no, 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 don't put a suit on. Yeah. Well, as I said before, when we're talking about developing puppies and juveniles, there are things that all decoys need to understand, and that is the feel. The feel behind what is happening in the transference of this dog coming in and actually engaging with me. Because that's where a lot of people lose it is decoys, and that's where I harshly judge decoys on, especially when working with young dogs and the juvies. Like it is just horrible watching people jamming dogs up, you know, and that's yeah. that's literally the end of their career because you get somebody that's highly incompetent that puts too much pressure on a young dog, a dog that could have been a fucking superstar, but it was just in that turning point of its life, the tipping point of its career where it didn't know whether it was strong enough to do it or not, and the decoy accidentally convinced it, no, I'm not. Mm. I mean, I've seen people do that in the martial arts scene as well. I've seen people who are superstars who just had one unfortunate circumstance where it went badly against them. You know, I know people out there going, yeah, but, you know, you should really dig down and you should find that heart and soul and so forth. That's easier said than done. Genetics. Some people just haven't got ticker. That's all it is. Well, some people have, you know, and some of these dogs have, but they're just on that tipping point of development and that's the point. That's the difference between being a good decoy and a great decoy because a great decoy will identify that and the and a great decoy will do oh, I'm everything. Talking about, I'm talking about human genetics. Like oh, some, mate, I'm some so- people just haven't got the ticker to do it. No, some people dogs. don't. Some people don't. I've seen talent in fighters and I've seen talent in dogs as well, but I've seen it because of not genuine abuse where you would say it was deliberate, but more sort of like a, a misalignment of skills and knowledge from the person who should be in the mastering section of it, like the person who's basically the coach or the head decoy, they don't understand what they're doing when they've got the dog or the human in that precipice point in their life, whether they've got ticker or not, they just don't know how to develop them well enough because they're only used to rushing, like they bum rush them through it and then they get to the stage where they go, this person could do anything or this dog could do anything, therefore I can do it with them because I'm the right person for it. That's not a great decoy. That's a good decoy. That's not a great decoy because that's a decoy that fucked a lot of dogs up along their time and literally lucked their way into a dog that could take the heat that they were putting on them all through their life because they don't understand the transference and they don't understand that tipping point cycle in that dog's life or that human's life Because, I mean, I spent most of my time in fighting gyms when I was a young guy. You know, I spent most of my times in pubs and clubs. I saw fucking talented crowd controllers who just had that really fucked up night. And that's not about ticker. That's just about them really realising this went so badly. Like, I've got a wife and kids at home. Do I really want to do this? That's not about ticker. No, we never had any married houses back then. There was a few, but, you know, like there were certain nights where you that you could see the, like the, their life flash before their eyes and they just thought, is this worth it to push on from here? Everybody has that moment in their life. Well, most of us do. I can't speak for everybody because I'm not everybody, but most of us have this from the conversations I've had with people in fight gyms and with working and watching so many people work dogs and doing it myself. And I know this because I, I remember fucking a dog up one day a dog that had talent and I knew that dog had talent but I kept pushing it because I wanted more and I was impatient and I wanted the ego. dog. It was, mate. It was it's massive ego. ego. I wanted to rush my project so I could show the dog off and I just had nobody watching me at that time. Like I know that if one of my mentors were watching me, like I remember Bart 
you telling that story about talking to you mm. about the dog at the army. Mm. If I had somebody, if Boyd was paying more attention at the time, not blaming him and I'm not blaming anyone, I blame myself. I knew better. I'd been coached better. I'd been taught better. But I wanted it then and I wanted it. I wanted to push him into my elite group because I knew this dog had the goods. But I was too impatient to wait for the dog to basically for his mind to catch up with his body. Mm. Had I waited, that dog would have tipped over the edge in a positive way and I would have got a monster out of him. He would have been brilliant. But I pushed him and pushed him and pushed him and pushed him to the point where there was no relief. And every time he saw me, he just thought, I'm going to get thumped. I'm going to – not in a bad way. I'm not saying I, I abused the dog or beat him up or anything like that. But there was too much psychological pressure during a like a very critical developmental stage that I wasn't paying enough attention to. And if I can pass advice on to you, Ryan – you know, coming up as a kid in the world where you, you're going to pursue decoying and so forth. Every technical person I've ever met in my life in any field, whether I've been an electrician, riding motorbikes, listening to people who are master guitar players, brilliant dog trainers, people who have been in the fight scene and everything like that, they always say the same thing. If I had my time again, I would slow down and I would pay so much more attention to those really little incremental points that I learned along the way if I feel that it's enough, then I've got to rest with that and believe that that was the best session that I could do at the time. And that's what I didn't do with that dog. And I kick myself for it time and time again. I think about, I can still see the dog and I can still see the owner and still remember giving him the bad news that, you know, like the dog's not going to make it. He's not going to be what you want him to be. I can see the disappointment in his face, like looking down at his dog. He kept the dog, but he left the club. Mm. Well, and ego is the enemy of patience. It is. Absolutely. I think one of the, the tricky things, when you're especially working other people's dogs, that's the thing as a decoy is like your cell, you don't work your own dog. I mean, you can work your own dog to an extent. We've talked about that at length. But other people are bringing their dogs to you. Mm. And so you're the trainer, you're doing the work, and the consequences are are not yours to own, right? Like yeah. you, it's someone else's dog, you have to hand it back to them. And I think one thing that I find really stressful is you can get a little bit on autopilot, especially the more – you do and the sort of the better you get, you're like, oh, I've seen this dog before. Like I, I've never worked this dog, but I know the bloodline. I, I know what's going on here. And you can just sort of be like going through the motions rather than really giving that dog the very individual session that it needs in accordance with, you know, matching the inputs that the dog's giving you and giving it the appropriate ones back. Being and, in and, the moment with the individual dog. Yeah, and it's fucking exhausting to do that. And especially if you're – working dogs all day, like if that's the thing, you know, you or like, you know, out here at club, you work 10 dogs in a few hours. So, you know, it's a very intense thing. And so you're mentally fatigued and quite physically fatigued and you're dealing with the fact that, you know, you're being hurt. That's the point of it all. Like you're not, hopefully not being injured, but it hurts to do. Mm. And you sort of have to remain quite switched on and really careful because it is, as you say, like it's so easy to just be like, oh, okay, what did we do last session? Okay, let's do that again this session or with a little bit more. And you don't do a little bit more, you do a lot more and the dog's not ready for it. And, you know, you've worked 30 dogs in the, time between working this one last time. So you can't remember everything that what you did with that dog, you know, you can't remember exactly how it went and where that dog was at. And it's just trying to put all that together. But I think that's the tricky part that I always find. And what I find quite stressful is remembering to really stay with it, even though you might have a really good idea of how this is going to pan out. Cause it's done all that in the past, like staying really connected. And unfortunately as well, 
it is an all care, no responsibility kind of situation as a decoy. Like mm. you, it's not your dog and you, you're not left with it yeah, if it doesn't pan out. You have to pick at the end of it. Yeah. But unfortunately as well, you know, like there's a lot of people that complain about the way that their dogs are worked and when they don't actually know how the dog should be worked. And, yeah. and, and unfortunately some sessions don't go well and some sessions have to go poorly for the next session to go well. And you see people that will complain and, and say that they're unhappy with how you work their dog when it was the right thing for the dog in that moment. But maybe you do misread some dogs. Maybe you do do things incorrectly and you want to retrospectively, you might look and go, fuck, I would do that differently given the opportunity to do it again, but it's too late. That's how I read it in that moment. Learn I'm from reacting. Mistakes yeah, I'm reacting from the information that I had. So unfortunately, you know, everybody I think makes mistakes with dogs and, and but it's that trying to stay in it as much as possible and staying like, okay, this session is all that matters right now. I'm staying emotionally and, and physically connected with this dog in this moment. But that's tricky when like, you know, you're the training director as well. And so then you're also trying to coach the person. And, and unfortunately, one of the trickiest parts of decoying as well is that very often the handlers are not very experienced. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's such a treat when you get to work a dog that has an experienced handler. And puppies are, you know, not only are they very often the hardest dogs to work, as you were just alluding to, like it, it, there's a lot of technical aspects to it and being very careful. And like you as a decoy, it's a very high stakes thing. You need to do it correctly. But more often than not, the handler of a puppy hasn't got a fucking clue what they're doing because it's their first dog. It's a puppy. The it's their puppy. Yep. And, and puppies are, are notoriously difficult to control in those sorts of situations and to do the right thing from the back end of them, right? Mm. Like from the front end, it's hard enough, but at least you get to do it. You know, I've worked countless puppies. I have no idea how many puppies I've worked, but it's a lot. And so you can, as I say, you start to generalize and you can start to sort of, even though you need all that individual effort for the dog, you start to get better and you can generalize in that way. But for the most part, the person holding that leash of that puppy has never done that before. Yeah, the dumb end of and, the leash. And by the time that they're getting competent at it, it's no longer a puppy and they won't do that again for another 10 to 12 years. Yeah. You know, like they won't be back on that. And so they'll never actually be very competent at it. It's not until people start, you know, handling a lot of puppies or cycling through a new one every year or something like that, that they're moving on. That's when you see people get really good, really competent at it. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes people get a bit perturbed by when you might say to them like, hey, we're going to get someone else to handle your dog. And it's like, but it's my dog. And it's like, yeah, but you're just a, a post can perform the function of what you're yeah, we'll doing. You like you can stand good. next to them if you think that you want to be in that position from behind the dog and encouraging them, but they can feather the leash in the exact right way. They can apply the right amount of tension. They can do all the right kind of things because they've done that in the past. So like, that's something I do with jazz quite a lot, you know, like I'll get her to handle dogs that I'm working, even when they're not her dog, there's somebody else's dog, just because she can read me, I can read her. We know what we're going to do and so we'll get much better results. You just and, eliminate the error. Yeah, and sometimes mm. you can see people get a little bit perturbed like, and, and they're like, well, teach me, get me better at it. And it's like, yeah, but I, like, I can't I teach two things. Hours. Well, but it's, it's like you're going to make mistakes. That's definitely going to happen. And, yep, we can do that. But why don't we just get her to do it because she's going to make less mistakes or no mistakes and those well, those mistakes have been made she's got to learn from them and at the end of the day if you're if this is your sport dog and you're going to keep it till it's 12 years old it doesn't really matter if you get very good at handling puppies what it gets what's important is that you get an adult dog that you can then handle because mm. it's so different handling an adult mm. dog oh, to handling a puppy right yeah absolutely 
But it so, all stems from the puppy. Like, yeah, that's right. You know, it's like that old song from little things, big things grow. Yeah. But like, you know, I like having started out in the army, like I'd, I worked tons of dogs before I ever saw a puppy because we don't have any puppies. So it was, it's all adult dog stuff. So then by the time I, when I started doing stuff with Stan and we work with puppies, I don't fucking clue what I'm doing. Like no idea with posting for a puppy and even like how to do, like how to work the leash. Oh, I had no idea. All I know how to do is work. What you working dog monsters and, and there's nothing to do. Right? No. <laughs> like you just you just go. stand there right? and like of course there's things to do. There, there's parts of that that are technical and whatever, but nothing like the puppies. Yeah, handler skills is something that you can't be taught in a book. Like decoying, you can't be you can't be taught in a book. You yeah. got to pick it up. You got to be on the tools and have a lot of dogs through your hands. End of story. Yeah, but I think one of the things like uh, I think in learning all this kind of stuff is there's a lot of work to be done without dogs. That that's what I think is really important. And like you remember when I first started, Glenn, like I, I took a bunch of bites in the army, but they're just bites. It's not decoying. It's just like you're the guy in the suit that gets mm, bitten, right? right? Like it's not developing a dog. And it wasn't until you started teaching me here, and then I was like, okay, well I've I've decided I'm going to do this, this is going to be a part of developing dogs is going to be a thing that I learn. And the majority, I remember you remarking on it one time, like I was shit. And then I came back like two weeks later and was okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I've noticed it. That kind of happens. But with you were thinking people. about it. Like, I was obsessed with it. Yeah, I know but, you, I could see that you were like, you were burning over that you didn't do a good job. Yeah. And then you came back and like, you were significantly better. And I, I kind of chuckled to myself. I thought, fuck, he's gone home and cooked on it. Yeah. Which is the best thing well, that can I happen. Was, mate, I was watching videos. Because then you can replay it in your head oh, over yeah. and over. And then you realize, oh, I should have done this and I should have stepped here and I should have transferred my weight yeah. across like that. And that's the important of observation. And that's the importance of understanding like when you make some mistakes and it's not critical, how you can carry that on and you can – relive it in a positive way in your head so you can plan it and build a trajectory when you get back there next time you can go that's how i need to play it out mate i'm so glad there are no hidden cameras at my house because you know what i did was i put on the tv shadow boxed yeah Yeah. in my bite suit yeah working dogs that weren't there (laughs) watching youtube videos of people working dogs and doing what they were doing as i was doing it It would be you remember that video of the kid with the lightsaber it is really star wars boy yeah yeah. (laughs) it would have been like that it was 100 like that it was me in a white suit that yep. I uh, like, and it was a totally wrong kind of watch. Remember, I used to have that Belgian ring suit yep. that was like getting bit on the on the bicep of that thing was horrendous because yep. there was no padding. It's a it's a fucking Belgian ring suit, and I was trying to catch bicep. No, you're not the it. only one. Like, no, we, you do. All, you got what you, you got. Have, you got to do what you got to do. But I was there, like no dog, doing that for fucking ages. Well, like dry firing. It's exact. It's, it's exactly, exactly the same thing. The yeah. same. You exactly. Know, you get good at pulling the trigger by pulling the trigger. Yeah, and there's so much data on that now. That like visualization and how effective that is. And well, it wasn't called visualization back then. Yeah, was, playing pretendies. Yeah, playing pretendies. He's shooting the, the TV yeah. when the news came on. <laughs> so, Ryan, that's what you got ahead of you, mate. There's a good movie that it's with – what's the guy that played Thor? What's his name? Um, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. <sighs> There's a good movie with Chris Hemsworth. Oh, Jason, was that a, was that a sexual moan? Or? No, that wasn't. Yes, it was. <sighs> Why yeah. would you say that about – Yeah, about one Chris. of our – He's exciting to me as Star Wars. Yeah, but he's, oh, a, he's, he's a, a wonderful man. He's a son of Australia. How dare you? How dare you? No, he's from Byron Bay. So what? He's beautiful. <laughs> First of all, I, I won't have it. I'll, I won't have it. I'll hear you shit me off a lot of things, but not Chris Hemsworth. Not one of our sons. He's a wonderful man. But let me get back to this movie. Really good because it was a it was a good part of the movie. I think the movie's called Drive and it was about. Oh, yeah, where he's a race car driver. Yeah, a race Formula car driver. driver. 
And it shows him like lying down, visualizing the entire track. And even he's doing the brake and pedaling and he's gearing and he's driving, like he's visualizing every turn that he's coming up to. And most people who really take their skills seriously, they do go through a lot of visualization. They plan it and they plot it out in their head and they agonize over it because they think to themselves, in order to break that barrier between good and great, that's what I need to do. You know, like I really need to think this through. There's no point in just going through and just peddling your way through it, just bum rushing your way through it. You actually do need to plan it. And that's why I'm such a stickler these days about both of us have been talking about excellence as mastery of the basics. It's a very good saying from Vince Lombardi, who coached one of the most successful American football teams. But those sort of comments, those sort of things, and thinking about working everything incrementally, like the increments that it actually needs, that's really where greatness starts to occur. It's not about your greatness. It's about the it's about the village holding itself up, like supporting each other, the entire network where once you realize how this works, then you really start to become very universal thinking and realizing that it's all connected. There's a reason that you're doing it and a reason why it doesn't just spill out into your dog work, but it spills out in between everything else, the relationships you have with people, the careers that you go on to develop, the things that you do with your own self-development as you expand further and further on. You start to see like all of this has a big picture to it. It makes a big difference. Like it makes a huge difference. I know we just had a good laugh at Pat talking about being the Star Wars boy with his <laughs> bite suit on. But, I mean, I used to do that when I was down the back of the property. You know, I used to get my sleeves and I used to – because I used to shadow box when I used to box and do kickboxing, I used to do the same thing with the sleeves. I used to imagine a dog was coming for me and because I didn't want to be shit. There were so many people up the front there. I just did not want to be average in front of all those people. That was too painful for me to have to go through that just to be – you know, like a person that fucks up and doesn't care about it. it. It wasn't good enough for me to do that. The feeling I got from working and catching dogs, but also the acceptance I got from the other people in the club, like that felt huge. That was a big thing to me because to be honest, I didn't have much. I didn't feel special as a young guy, but that made me feel special. All of that made me feel like there was something that that was worthwhile happening in my life that I had something to look forward to. But it's different for everyone, mate. Like you might not experience that and there's no pressure. You know, it's good to hear that your dad said if you don't want to do it, you can walk away from it because some kids don't get that. Just give me the bite suit back. Yeah, give me. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be advertised on iron's or whatever. (laughs) Some kids don't get that from their parents. They don't get that relief. The pressure that they get and certainly friends of mine who are in different cultures, the pressure they get from their parents is you don't have a choice. You have to do this. There is no stepping out of it, but that's nice to know. So it's, I mean, it's up to you, mate. I did watch you catching dogs at Casey's club. And I thought what I saw was very promising. You know, I saw you catching dogs on your legs when they were running down on you on the field, the way you caught the dog and the way you transferred your weight and the way that you stepped back in and drove the dog for a 15 year old boy. That's only been in it for a year. I think the key was catching Hervé's dogs. I do too. It's like when you're catching a legitimate crocodile that will hospitalise you if you get things wrong, everything in Australia becomes a poodle. It's like I've seen his confidence levels just increase. He he doesn't have to think. It just all comes naturally now. It's going to get better in time, but he's sort of, I don't know, manned up, dropped. His nuts are dropped since that trip over there, if that makes sense. <laughs> you will still get a crocodile or two in this country. Yeah, they'll pop you, up every now and again. You just don't get the influx of them. Like we don't have the luxury of having 
We're not spoilt by genetics in this country, whereas Europe is very steeped in it. But there's going to be no surprises. He's been smashed by Crocs. Now, if he comes up and knows someone, you'll oh, still yeah. get surprised. I've been there. Trust me. I've, I've been there before. I know. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. Mm. I found that when. I started working with a bunch of civvies and just had this expectation that people would be able to play with their dogs well and play tug. Mm. I sort of noticed that people sort of in general didn't and it needed a lot of coaching and then sort of reflected on it. And it was like, oh, the dogs that I learned to do that on, if you got it wrong, you the consequences were very right. serious. <laughs> and the dogs, they already sort of knew <coughs> it, right? Like they were deep in the pets. system of it. That's yeah. their pet dog that yeah. sleeps on their bed. Yeah, mm. exactly. And so I was like, oh, okay. Like there is a steep learning curve mm. and I got thrown in at the deep end and luckily swam. And so now it's not just that I was naturally good at it. <laughs> it was that there's a lot to learn here and people need to be taught that in a correct sequence and all that kind of stuff. If there's no consequence, you're not going to learn. Yeah. So do you reckon this is a career for you, Ryan, or just something you're doing right now? I want to go like into the dog squad of QPS. Oh, yeah. But that's a little while away. Can't really do much at the moment. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of goal for you when you yeah. leave school is to be a cop and then as a cop look to become a dog handler. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Cool. I can already hear the disapproval. Jason's rolling his eyes. <sighs> Children. Why the cops if it's like if it's working dogs that is the end goal, why the cops? I don't know. It just seems like a stable place to be. Yeah, makes sense. It is. Certainly not like my place. <laughs> stable environment, yeah, leave home. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, good luck. Mm-hmm. You've done well sitting here as a 15-year-old getting talked at by a bunch of middle-aged men just telling you what's what. <laughs> Reminiscing. Yep. Jason, plug everything. You're the, the OG sponsor of the show. Tell us uh, what's for sale, mate. What do you got? Oh, heaps of URJ gear, heaps of death grip gear. Bite um, suits. Yeah, bite suits coming. What brand? Demonay? Demonay. So you're going to be a distributor of Demonay in Australia? Yep, yep. eventually. So I'll probably within a month. Okay. Hopefully. Still got plenty of prong collars. Don't worry about Queensland laws. All my prong collars are now stored in New South Wales. Yeah, okay. That's still – just, yeah, they just, just ship from somewhere else. Yeah, I just ship everything from New South Wales now. Yeah. But, yeah, it's just all the usual stuff. It's www.einzweck.com, E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. The OG sponsor of the show. Mate, I still thank you very much. I'll never forget. I know we've talked about it many times, but – from episode one, you wanted to be a sponsor of the show. We told mm. you to fuck off. No homers. And then we needed money and we're like, you know what? Hey, uh, <laughs> we wanted better microphones. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, you know what? You could give us some money if you want. Uh, so we always appreciate you, mate. It's, Indeed. It's, um, it's been a, a lovely partnership throughout. My pleasure. You guys are like family to me anyway. It's actually funny. Somebody quite some time ago, they messaged me and they said, do you not like Jason? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, I actually do like Jason a lot. Witty banter. That's right. This is this Australian colloquialism that we actually have. Like it's a, if you do like each other, you actually have like a, a wicked sense of oh, humour. If, with if it. somebody read our messenger, yeah, 100% would think we despise each other. That's like right. I turned up here tonight, today, and I'm like, is Verity here? No, she's not here. Well, what about that bald old ginger-headed prick? <laughs> <laughs> and the girls have no idea who I am. Um, Who? You're talking about their boss and they're like, yeah, oh, Glenn. Um, oh, we'll see if he's available. Yeah, one of the – when you did that, the operations manager rang me and said, there's a guy in reception. <laughs> there's a horrible man. Yeah, there's somebody who looks like Oscar the Grouch in reception. Now, do you want to deal with him? <laughs> no, but the fact is what I was trying to get at is that that sort of banter is often that you do like somebody and you have a good relationship with them. If I didn't give a shit, I'd be polite. Yeah, that's right. 
if I'm playful with you, that means that I like you. Ooh, playful. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm putting an end to this. <laughs> hey, before we wrap up, I do want to say that it's long gone by the time this comes out, but I put my online course on sale this week. Yes. Um, and because I'm taking it down, I'm taking it down at the end of the year. And so it has six months access. And so if you hadn't bought it by the 1st of July, you're not going to buy it. It's after that by the time you're listening to this. So it's not a sales pitch. But I did want to thank everybody that's ever bought that over the years. So it, it, it um, you know, that course, it, it was never designed as being a course. It was just footage that I had when COVID happened and yep. was like, well, everybody has to have a course. And so on it went, but it's had incredible feedback. I've had people purchase it multiple times and renew it over and over and people that refer back to it all the time. And so like, I just wanted, before I do the wrap up, I'd really did want to thank everybody that's purchased it. And I know that there's like, there's a to and fro on that. I get your money, you get my information. But I really do appreciate everybody that has purchased it. I, I appreciate everybody that has recommended it to anybody else. I appreciate all the people who have reached out to me and told me that there were parts of it that, you know, changed the way that they do things and all of the good, bad and ugly that's come of it over the few years that it's been up. I, I, I really appreciate everybody that has been involved in it. So thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to putting it on the shelf and getting ready for the new one. I think they appreciate all the hard work and time that you obsessed over it too and the things that you probably changed and changed and changed yeah, times. Yeah, there was a lot of changes. Knowing that, that that's a Pat Stewart special. <laughs> Wait till the new course. It'll be, oh, it'll be, be horrific. You're going to obsess and obsess and obsess over that. Well, have you months. seen the notes on his board? It, yeah. Yes. I, I was one-wheeling in his workshop and I walked past the board and I thought – yeah, that's true, Pat Stewart. He's got <laughs> magnetic bulldog clips with notes. Yeah, I've and, got it all laid out. Like, yeah. and I've moved that around a lot. And you know, one of the things, speaking of all the stuff that we're doing here, is I'm I'm gonna film a decoy basics course, and yeah, that good. that's gonna be part of the big package that comes out. But it'll be something that people can buy as a standalone, mm. and it's gonna be exactly as we talked about. Like, it's it's not gonna turn you into a decoy. You got to learn that stuff for real. You got to go. But it, what it's gonna do is give you like the glide path of learning and go like yeah, this skill set becomes this skill set, and that becomes this skill set, and this is how you got to stack those together. And I'm also like the main market who that's going to be for is not just people interested in becoming decoys, but people with new dogs. And so that you can then go, okay, well, this is, you know, it's not the gospel, but this it's is a guideline. It, this is what it should look like. Yeah. And if somebody then starts strapping their cricket pad to their forearm, <laughs> well, fuck that maybe, <laughs> maybe you look at it and go, oh, maybe I'll, it's worth the, the drive to somewhere else. Yep. Before we do the show wrap up, once again, I want to thank Antonol Australia for oh, yeah. their generous support. And their fantastic product. It's a great product. You heard me say it on last week's show. Narelle says that all dogs should be on it all the time from puppies all the way to cradle to the grave, basically. They should be on Antonol. It's not a product that we push lightly. Narelle doesn't endorse anything that she believes is rubbish, nor would I. I wouldn't have it on the show. I wouldn't endorse it. I wouldn't do it for quids. I wouldn't take the money if I really didn't believe in the product. I'm just not that sort of person. I can't be bought by people I don't respect. I can't be bought by companies who have got shit products. I just will not do it. I'd rather sacrifice money than take in that shit and then have people sore and angry with me. I'd rather give you something that genuinely is going to be great for your dogs. And Antonol is one of those products that – all my colleagues in the industry, anybody who's anybody that I know who really wants to look after their dog and does want to give them a supplement, even if they're not on many, that they do want to have a quality supplement, that is certainly one that I would recommend you getting your dog on. So I know we joke and talk a lot of smack on the show from time to time, but I'm not kidding when I talk about how good Antonol is and especially my appreciation in all the support they've given me and Narelle and other incredible dog trainers all around the world 
Good on you, Antonol. Thank you again for supporting us. And anytime we, we need your help, you put your hand in your pocket. So thank you very much. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Then mm. go to another one. Do it yep. there as well. Only good reviews, please. Oh, no, just say whatever you want. If you want to get on our mailing list, you should totally do that. <laughs> we'll use it at some point. We haven't. We pay for it every month, but yeah. we haven't used it yet. But we got to have it. Get yes. on the mailing list. It's an important part of the business. you got to get on it. Get on our mailing list. Start yep. your own mailing list. Yeah, do it. Facebook's going broke. Have you seen their stupid Oculus thing? It's so fucking crap compared How dare to you, the- sir? It's so crap compared to the Apple know. thing. You haven't even, they haven't even put it to market <sighs> yet. And I'm very disappointed that the Elon Musk Zuckerberg cage fight has been cancelled. Uh, is it really? Yeah, it's they've apparently pulled out. I think we need another submarine for those two. <laughs> Glenn. I was totally looking forward to a Musk Zuckerberg fight. I mean, I to have still going ahead. It was showed on social media today that he was in the gym. Oh, maybe grinding it'd be away. Like two Hopefully, twelve-year-olds. No, it'd be fantastic watching two billionaires duke it out. How fun would that be? Absolutely, it'd be great. Hopefully, something goes crack. I'm 100% down for it. I hope yeah. it happens. Oh, who, 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 who do you take? I reckon Zuckerberg. He's been smashing through BJJ for quite some time now. Yeah. Yeah. Always bet on the fat guy. Yeah. As much as I reckon Zuckerberg perhaps could win, I would like to see Daddy Elon so be, would I. beat I'd, the fuck out of yeah, him. Yeah, I'd rather. Cause I, think <laughs> I don't Zuckerberg's, care for either of them. <laughs> mate, since the conception of Facebook, he's had too much of an easy life and I'd like to see <laughs> him, you know, get bruised up. And yeah, yeah. He's surrounded by a band of constant suck-ups all the time and it'd be like, nice to see him get hurt. Yeah. yeah. Well, fair enough. That wakes people up sometimes. Like Mike Tyson says, everyone's got a plan to get punched until, in the mouth. Until Daddy Elon smacks yeah. him around. Yeah. I just like the idea of two billionaires duking it out over, over like a Twitter fight. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. Well, that just got our show cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take them both on. Yeah, fuck Both yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Well, remember... Eden and I were going to go cage fight. Remember that? That's right. That never eventuated. Eden, Eden thought better of it. We should try and reignite well, that fight. It was going to be a whole big punch on here with a charity match and the whole lot. And he's like, uh, uh, no. No, you can't kick me in the he legs. He probably thought you'd eat him. Well, this is this was <laughs> Yeah, you were 150 kilos heavier at this yeah, point, I was right? 100 kilos heavier. It was like... He probably thought, Fernand no. will put two fucking slices of bread on me and just start Listen, munching he didn't, want, he didn't want ground, no ground a pound. He wanted like nothing oh, on the ground. Oh, fuck. Nothing. No, you could have a boxing match. That'd be all right. Yeah, but I'm like, I'll thigh kick you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll break your leg. <laughs> all right, Connor. <laughs> uh, all right, where am I up to? Oh, uh, support the show. Yeah. Patreon. Patreon. Get in there. Yeah. We're the best thing you can do with, the, with Patreon is just, if your wife is complaining about it, or your husband, just Why wait would... till they fall asleep and just grab their card, just plug yeah, in use, the numbers. Yeah, just tell their card off. Yeah, just, that's it. Thanks, thanks, <laughs> oh, Jase. Jesus, come on. I knew you'd come in handy for something on the show. Uh, all right, so get into Patreon. <laughs> a few bucks a month gets your extra episode in there. Yeah. You could give as much as you like. Yeah. Well, we Please both, do. We, we've both got Apple Vision coming up soon. Yeah, so we need those. We, we need we, them so bad. We need some money, please. We need them. Yeah. <laughs> we need them so badly. Yep. All right. Or buy some merch. Get in the spring. Buy yeah, some yeah, T-shirts. Yeah. For yep. sure do that. Yep. If you want to get in contact with us, jump into the Facebook discussion group because mm-hmm. there's no Twitter discussion group yet. So no. Daddy Elon hasn't made us a group, but we'll – so get into Facebook. Yep. And if you want to get in contact with us directly, shoot us an email. We are info at canoparadigm.com. Goodbye. <laughs>